Today's scripture reading is coming out of 3 John, so please grab your Bible and turn with me to 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. All right. Well, what a joy again it is to come to open up God's Word. What a privilege. We live in a generation where we have the technology to be able to do what we're doing right now. Uh, so let's not take this for granted. Let's not just be passive observers like when you watch a television show. Uh, let's take out our Bibles, our tablets, whatever. Let's follow along. Let's dig into the Word. For as disciples of Jesus, we've been commanded to, uh, to teach everyone to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. So this is a continual process where we are putting ourselves underneath the Word, saying, Jesus, shape me, make me more like you today. Uh, so let's do that as we come now to the second half of a two-part series uh, through this tiny little letter called Third John. So maybe you're still flipping, looking for it. It's a tiny letter right near the back of your Bible. So find Third John, and let's dig into this again today. I think the message today could probably be defined by one word, and that word is Eureka. Do you know that word, Eureka? It's, it simply means, I found it. Uh, I found it, Eureka. And, and, and really where that originated and where it got all of its force in our culture, where we even get passed down today, I don't know how many people really say that anymore, but you know the word. It was a word that defined an entire generation that lived in the mid-1800s. It all began when a man named James Marshall and some friends were building a sawmill, and they were flushing water down a tunnel. And so they were filling this tunnel, trying to get everything out of it. They flushed all the water down. It created a pool at the bottom, and James Marshall was down at the bottom looking in this pool, and he started to see that there was flecks of gold all through this pool. And so he pulled them out, and he couldn't believe that he was holding gold in his hand, and he ran up to a certain Mr. Scott, and he said, Eureka, I have found it. And Mr. Scott said, found what? And he said, gold. 
That moment sparked what was at that time the largest migration of people in the entire history of the Western Hemisphere. In the mid-1800s, 115,000 people uh, flooded into Southern California by land, by sea, everybody trying to to come to find their share of the gold, every single one of them with the great dream that one day they would be able to yell, Eureka! But of course, everybody that arrived quickly learned that not all that glitters truly is gold. There is very much such a thing as fool's gold, or it's a metal called iron pyrite. And so as people began to dig for gold, they began to learn, okay, there's real gold, and then there's other stuff that looks to the naked eye exactly like real gold. They look identical, but one is real gold and one is fool's gold, or iron pyrite pyrite. So then the big question became, how do you distinguish between the two? How do you discern if it's fool's gold or if it's real gold? And what they would do is they would apply certain tests to each of the metals. And these tests would reveal whether something was true gold or whether it was fool's gold. Now, all of our dentists, or you work in dental care right now, just hold on to your armchair seats for a moment because one of the main tests, as you probably well know, every dentist's nightmare, they, they wake up in the night, chills and sweats thinking of people doing this. They would take the gold, and what would they do? They would bite on it, right? They'd bite on it really hard with their tooth because here's the thing. Real gold is soft. Iron pyrite is hard. If you bite really hard on gold, true gold, your tooth will bite into the gold and you'll be fine. If you bite really hard into iron pyrite, your tooth will break, crack, and break off. This is why dentists have a really hard time with this. All our dentists right now are just like, I don't even know if I can listen to the rest of this message. But the point is simple. They had to apply certain tests to the gold to determine if it was real gold or whether it was fake gold, and they had to do that before they could ever yell, Eureka. Now, Jesus warned that there are people who claim to be true Christians, true leaders in the church, who are not actually true Christians at all. They might be called fool's gold. They are not true Christians. So, for instance, Jesus said this of leaders. He said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like good Christian leaders, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. He went on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus brought up these words because he knows the powerful influence that other people have on our lives. We are all influenced by by forces, by people, particularly powerful people, uh, leaders and those kind of things. Those kind of people influence us, and Jesus knows that we tend to imitate those whom we respect, those who maybe are in positions of leadership. And that's not a bad thing at all if those people are leading us toward Christ. That's a good thing. However, Jesus is saying that there are those who at first appearance seem like they're believers, seem like they're great godly Christian leaders, but they are not. And so we must be careful whom we imitate. This raises the obvious question then of how do we distinguish the true from the false? 
How do we distinguish those types of things? And just as the prospectors in Southern California had tested to determine what was real gold and what was fake gold, here in 3 John, in the second half of it, John gives us what we might call an imitation test. That is a test that we need to apply to, to anyone who claims that they're, they're a Christian or especially a Christian leader whom we are, we are imitating or who is influencing us in a certain way. This imitation test, when applied, will show you who you should imitate and who you should not. The kind of things, actions and behaviors that you should imitate and the kind of actions and behaviors that you should not. So, today I'm just going to break today's message into three parts, very simple. First, I just want us to understand this imitation test. What do I mean by that? Understand it. Then what John does is he gives us two illustrations, a negative one and a positive one of people who we should imitate or not. So kind of real gold and fool's gold, if you will. And then we'll finish by applying it. So understanding it, illustrating it, and applying it. All right, you ready to go? Here's our first heading. Let's just try to understand this imitation test that John is laying out for us. This test is given to us in verse 11. Here's what John writes. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil but imitate good. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, this word imitate right here, this is the Greek word mameomai. You any idea what word we might get from that in English? It's not exact, but the word is mimic. It's where we get our word mimic. In this verse, we are seeing that it is right and it's good to mimic certain behaviors in people, and there's other people and behaviors that we should not mimic or imitate. Now, some Christians, when you talk to them, they sound very spiritual, and they'll say things like, I only follow Jesus. I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't imitate people. I don't mimic people. Jesus is my only one that I follow. Okay, we can grant that right up front. That is true, very true in one sense of the word. John himself writes in 1 John 2.6, we are to walk as Jesus walked, walk as Jesus did. Yes, of course, Jesus is the supreme one we are to mimic or imitate. But listen, don't get more spiritual than the Bible. Because the Bible itself calls you not just to imitate God or Jesus, but also to imitate people. The Bible calls us to imitate God and people. We might want to add certain people, not all people and not everything they do, but it is very good and it's very right. I hope, you to see, I hope you'll see as we go along here that God has given us people to imitate. So Paul talks this way in Corinthians, for instance. Here's what Paul writes. Paul says, follow my example, mimic my example, and then he adds, very importantly, as I follow the example of Christ. So there, right there, you have an example of you are to imitate certain people, but of course be discerning only as they follow the example of Christ. The book of Hebrews says the same thing. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Mimic their faith. We are to imitate God and other people. But as you can see already, uh, we got to be discerning in how we go about this. And so what John does is he says there's a test that you're to put onto all people who maybe you'll imitate or who you will mimic. You are to imitate them in a certain way. This is so important, John says. And so he wants to give us this test. 
Here's why this is so important. Let's get the why. We must be careful whom we imitate because a person's behavior reveals their true spiritual condition. For yourself and for those whom you imitate, this is so important that you apply this imitation test to them because their behavior reveals their true spiritual condition. I get this again in verse 11 uh, where John writes, Beloved, do not imitate evil but imitate good. Whoever does good, does good, is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So notice, John is saying there are some people, they are true Christians. That's why he says they are from God. They've been born again. They are the children of God. Then he says there are some people, they do evil. They have not seen God. They have not been born again. They are not truly the children of God. There's real gold. There's fool's gold. And we must be discerning over who we allow to influence us and whom we will imitate So how do you distinguish them? Now, here's the big question, right? How do you distinguish them? How do you put, determine if someone is true Christian, good Christian leader to imitate, or fool's gold? Well, let's just ponder maybe a few potential answers which are not actually the right answers. Perhaps it is that the person has all the right beliefs. Right belief is very important, very important. But right belief only by itself does not necessarily say that someone is a true Christian or a true Christian leader. For as James writes, even the demons believe there is one God, and they shudder. The demons who came to Jesus recognized He was the Son of God, but they didn't have saving faith in Jesus Christ. So right belief is very important, but it's not the ultimate test in one sense of the word. Or you could even say Bible knowledge, good, good Bible knowledge. That's really important. But the Pharisees had the best Bible knowledge of all. And then Jesus said of them that their, their hearts were far from God. Or spiritual experiences. Maybe you think, oh, someone's had great spiritual experiences. That's the person I follow. Again, good stuff, but not a definitive test because Even the people who stood around Lazarus' tomb and watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, seems that some of those people were also part of the crowds who cried out, Hosanna, when Jesus entered in what we call the triumphal entry. And some of those people were also the ones that called out, crucify him. So, Bible knowledge, right belief, spiritual experiences, all good in their own right, but they're not the ultimate test whether someone truly is a believer or whether they might actually be fool's gold, so to speak. So, those are signs, they're not sure signs, that a person truly is a believer. Here it is. Here is the chief mark. The chief mark of a Christian, and therefore the chief mark we should look for in those whom we imitate, is consistent godly behavior in doing what is good. The chief mark of a Christian, and therefore the chief mark of those whom we should look for, the, whom we imitate, is this consistent, I didn't say perfect, notice that, consistent godly behavior in doing what is good. And I clearly see this in verse 10, or I think it's verse 11, sorry, verse 11. Whoever does, this is the key language here, does good, not talks about good, has the right beliefs about good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This refers then to the continual ongoing practice. 
Continual ongoing practice, not just like a… We, we want to be careful. We don't say that it's perfection because Christians still sin many times. But when you look at someone's life, is there a consistent pattern of godly behavior over time pointing to the fact that that person has true saving faith? The chief evidence that a person's truly a believer and truly a Christian leader who is worthy of imitation is that they produce fruit in their lives. Now, listen very clearly. I've got to make this point crystal clear for us, lest there be any misunderstanding. Your behavior does not save you. All the good things that you do in this world cannot save you. To use biblical language, we are not saved by works. Our good works, our good deeds, being a good person, none of that can save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ alone can save you. Jesus and Him alone, nothing that you add can save you. But here's the key point to add to it. The evidence that you've truly been saved is a changed life, a life that works to leave the old sin patterns behind. Again, not perfection, but a life that hates sin, now is making war on it, a life that says, I'm trying to cultivate that which is good, I'm trying to grow in all of these kind of things. That's the distinction, not saved by works, but works, as James talks about and Paul, are the evidence that you've truly been saved. This helps us also to answer a question that many Christians have asked me over the years, and that is the question of if we're saved by faith in Christ, why is the final judgment always described as a judgment of our works? Look at all the, the examples of that. That's what happens. We are judged according to how we have lived. But if it's faith in Christ to save us, why is it a judgment by works? Well, it's what we said here. It's because your works are the chief evidence of your faith. They reveal whether it's true faith or whether it's just something you, I don't know, some pr words you said once or you wanted to fit in or whatever the reason may be. You just want to be a religious person, a churchgoer. I don't know. The chief evidence of true saving faith is good works. Here's the best illustration of this. Follow me now. Think of the thief on the cross. Let's say he's probably around 40 years old or something. He has spent his life living apart from God. He has obviously committed all kinds of crimes. So, he's kind of, as the other thief says to him, we're deserving to be up here. So, here's Jesus in the middle, two thieves on his left and on his right, and this one thief, he's now literally on death's door. What we have here is a deathbed conversion, if you will, except for he's not on a bed. But it is a deathbed conversion. The Spirit of God moves on his heart, and he cries out to Jesus for mercy. Now, if you are saved by what you do, by being a good person, then Jesus would need to have said to him, I'm sorry, man, you had your life, you had your chance, it's too late now. You cannot make up for all your bad deeds with a bunch of good deeds because you're about to die in like the next few hours. And so, sorry. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the good news. Uh, it's a free gift to anyone who will receive it. Salvation is the gift of God saying, will you call on Jesus Christ to save you? That alone can save you. None of your good deeds can save you. Will you call on Christ to save you? But this thief, one day, will also be standing with you and with me on judgment day. 
And on Judgment Day, we will all be standing before the throne of God and we read that there is a book and there are books, plural. The book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is the name of every single person whom Jesus has purchased by His blood for God. On that day, the thief's name will be read. His name will be read for he has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He will be saved, to use our language we often use. But what is the proof that he's really saved? That it's, it's true faith and not fool's gold faith. What, what is the true test of that kind of thing? Well, this is where the books, plural, come in. The books, according to Scripture, are a record of everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, even every idle word we have ever spoken. And on that day, the thief's book will be brought forward, and the thief's book will be read, and and every single page as it's being read is going to say something to the effect of, had no regard for God, did not worship God, did not thank God, did not live for God, sinned in this way, sinned in that way. His whole life has nothing to do with living for His Creator. So it's just basically sin across every single page. But wait, on the very last page, in the very last paragraph of his life, it'll be read something maybe like this, humbled himself before Jesus, saw his sin, gave up his pride Ask Jesus to save him, to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And then turned to his fellow thief and rebuked him for speaking so harshly to Jesus. Maybe it will be said of him on that day in that last paragraph, was not ashamed of the gospel, but identified himself with Jesus and faced the same scorn and shame that Jesus did. And having read that page, maybe, God, maybe God's just going to rip that page right out of the book. Maybe God will then hold it up before billions of angels and before billions of people and say, here is the evidence that this man's faith in Christ was true. Here is the evidence. Here are the works. Small though they may be, may it only be a paragraph, there is still evidence that this man truly had faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, the chief sign that you are truly a Christian and that anyone whom you are going to imitate is truly a Christian is this sign of a consistent godly life that uh, seeks to kill all the sin in your life, that puts it behind you and is pursuing Christ and living for Christ. If that's not there, you very may well fall into the category of those who say, Jesus, Jesus, and he'll say, I never knew you. You are not one of my people. There is no evidence of true saving faith. So ask yourself these kind of questions before we apply it anywhere else. Ask yourself, first, have you asked Jesus to save you? Secondly, is there evidence that you're truly now following Him? Do you hate sin in your life? Are you seeking to put it to death? Are you seeking to grow in your knowledge and love of Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to do good, as John is talking about, all the ways that good is defined for us throughout the Scriptures? Are the markers there so that when someone, so to speak, bites down on your faith, is it true faith? 
or is it fool's gold? Reflect for yourself first. But remember why John is bringing this up in the first place. Bring it all back around here. John wants to emphasize that we must be so careful whom we imitate. Other people from social media to leaders to people in our lives, they all influence us. And we must be so careful who we imitate. And so what John is doing here is he's helping us to discern, to apply this test to everyone who has an influence in our life. And do they pass the test? So that's the first point. Right now we're just simply trying to understand what this imitation test is. Now what I want to do is turn with John to some real-life examples to work this out. So here's what we do in the second place. Now that we've understood it, now let's illustrate it. And what John does is he gives us two examples, two illustrations, one negative and one positive. We can say one of true faith and one of fool's gold faith. You remember, if you were with us last week, John is writing to a man named Gaius. John's not at this church. Gaius is at this church, and Gaius has two other names that we're going to talk about in this church, a man named Diotrephes and a man named Demetrius. And all Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius are all part of this church, and John has written this letter to Gaius now in this church. And John, what he's doing here is warning Gaius against following the example of a man named Diotrephes. So let's look at him first. He comes up in verse 9. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who, listen to this phrase, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Wow. So John wrote this letter to this church, but Diotrephes rejected John the apostle, and rejected those who had sent the letter along. He does not acknowledge our authority. Wow, we got a fight brewing here. That's what's going on. So what was the problem with Diotrephes? It doesn't seem like the problem with Diotrephes, as with so many others, was false teaching. John doesn't say anything about his wrong doctrine or errors that he was teaching people about. He doesn't mention that. It seems that the problem with Diotrephes was an abuse of power, an abuse of power. Diotrephes was a powerful and influential man in the church who wanted to control everything. We might call him a church dictator. Anyone who's been part of a church, and maybe even some small churches in particular, there are plenty of Diotrephes out there. And it is this man that John says he does not want Gaius imitating him. Don't fall for his leadership Gaius, I don't want you looking to him. I don't want you following any of his example. He is not a good example. So how do you identify such a person so as not to imitate them? By applying the test. John here gives us a few tests for how to spot a church dictator whom you should never imitate. Not just a church dictator. Let's just say a, a leader who says they're a Christian and they're in some sort of influential position. So here's the test. Here's the first one. You can spot church dictators who are not worthy, underline, not worthy of imitation because, here's the first thing, they're the kind of person who always has to be the boss. 
As John says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. He's always got to put himself forward. Now, don't misunderstand this, because I'm telling you, on the flip side of this, there's some Christians who actually abuse pastors with this. Because just because somebody wants to, or someone gives strong leadership, it does not mean they are adotrophies. Just because leaders in your church are making decisions, maybe which you don't always like, does not mean that they are adotrophies. Be very careful of accusing someone of being adotrophies just because they're actually doing the job that they've been called to do by being a leader. But all leaders must be very careful not to lord it over people, not to be doing this for their, their own reputation, for their own gain, for their own glory. They're not the kind of person who's going to be pressing other people down all the time. That is the kind of leadership we do not want to imitate. True leaders lead as Jesus did. Jesus led with strength. He led with conviction, but He also led with humility, with compassion, and with tenderness. May we all be leaders like that for those of us who are in leadership positions. Here's the second way you can spot a church dictator, the kind that you are not to imitate. They are people who, uh, let's see, they are not worthy of imitation because other godly leaders identify them as problem people. That's how you can spot them. Other godly leaders not yourself, but other godly leaders, will identify them as problem people. So John writes, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Oh man, I told you there was a fight brewing. What we got going on here, I mean, realize, realize who this is who's writing this. This is John. I mean, the Apostle John. This is John, the son of thunder. John, who wrote a good section of the New Testament. And John says, if I come to your church... I will take care of this. This is a full-on Western showdown. I mean, John's going to be arriving in town with his spurs and six guns on his shoulders, and they're going to stand out in the middle of the street. You can just hear the Western music beginning to play in the background, can't you? There is a big showdown about to come, and John is not afraid to name names. Diotrephes is having a serious negative impact on the gospel and upon this church family, and he names names. And so he's saying, Gaius, notice when other godly leaders point out, watch out for that person, you need to listen because you're being unduly influenced by Diotrephes. Be careful. Listen to our advice. Third, you can spot church dictators who are not worthy of imitation because here's what they do. They slander other church leaders. So John says, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. And what is he doing? Talking wicked nonsense against us. Whenever people want to destroy good, godly Christian leaders, they start what we might call a whispering campaign. The whispering campaign can begin in prayer meetings, can begin in emails, can begin in committee meetings, and here's what it looks like, speaking from painful personal experience. It looks just like when Absalom undercut his own father, King David. Things were well in King David's kingdom, 
until his wicked son wanted the throne for himself. And so what did Absalom do? He went and sat at the city gate where everyone came through and where the influential people were. And all he did was begin to question King David's effectiveness and his leadership. And he sowed seeds of doubt into everyone's minds that maybe someone else could do a better job, that maybe King David's not all he's cracked up to be. Rather than saying, let's pray for the king, let's support the king, and let's work with the king, he undercut him and we read that by this little whispering campaign, he stole the hearts of the people. Speaking from painful personal experience, please be very careful when you hear other people knocking your church leadership. We are not perfect people. We make mistakes, and we are happy to be able to be questioned on decisions that are being made and to have dialogue and all these types of things. But that is very different from people that go around talking about church leaders and undermining their reputation, their character, and their competencies. And friends, it will destroy a church, absolutely destroy a church. That's all it takes, really. I mean, if you want a pastor out, just start a whispering campaign. I'm not trying to give you advice here. Please don't do that. <laughs> but that is, you can hap- it can happen very easily. I mean, Absalom can take down the king himself. This is the power of slander. This is the power of gossip. And let me just say this to you. As one who's now been in pastoral ministry for around 20 years, I think I can speak with some degree of authority. When people actually come talk face-to-face with me or with board members or the board chair, what I find is true about 90% of the time is that they do not have the whole story. So they've been talking to people, they assume they know the whole story, but they don't. They don't have all their facts correct. They have a spin on it which is not correct. And if we just have a chance to clear it up, so many of these problems go away rather than the slander that happens behind the scenes. So if you got problems with us as church leaders, no problem. We're not saying we're perfect. We're not saying you must do everything we say. We are not dictators here. But here's my suggestion. If you have a problem, just come and talk to us. Talk to our board chair. Send us an email. We'll clear things up, hopefully. Some things maybe you just simply disagree and you're accurate. But let's be very careful not to be the kind of people who talk wicked nonsense about the leaders that are in our churches. Finally, You can spot church dictators who are not worthy of imitation because they abuse power and they abuse people. So John continues, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us, and he does more than that. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Do you remember from last week what's going on here? Here's the context. John had sent some missionaries to this church of Diotrephes, Gaius, and Demetrius, and when they had arrived, because they came from John, Diotrephes refused to allow them into the church. He refused to support them financially. He would not even allow them a place to sleep in any of the members' houses for the night. In fact, if any of the members opened up their homes, Diotrephes had those members kicked out of the church. That's the kind of man he is. He's abusing his power, and he is abusing people. So there is the kind of example, the negative example, what we should not imitate. Apply the test to people, and that's the kind of person you do not want to imitate. Now, before I go on, I want to make a really important aside, a really important application. 
In our generation, I would say that one of the number one reasons why people reject the Christian faith, whether they grew up in the church and rejected it or whether they just reject it altogether, is because they say that Christians are… what word do you think it is? Yeah, you got it. I'm sure. I can hear it coming through the cameras right now. That Christians are hypocrites. And there's plenty of examples to go with it from… Catholic priests abusing little boys, to gay bashing from the pulpit, uh, to all kinds of power-hungry pastors who've defrauded churches or used their position and, and then uh, sexually exploited women in the church, the stories could go on for an absolutely long time. If you're one of those people who says, I cannot accept Christianity because there's so much hypocrisy, then listen to three quick things you see from what we just talked about. Three things which I think speak directly to you and to your concerns. First, realize that not everyone who says they're a Christian actually is. Not everyone who says they're a Christian actually is a Christian. John gives this illustration of Diotrephes and then immediately says such people like Diotrephes have not seen God. So that's a plea for you to realize that just because someone's in leadership, uh, even as a famous Christian celebrity or a pastor or a priest or whatever, it does not necessarily follow that they're even a Christian to begin with. That's straight from the Bible. I think we can appreciate that. Secondly, notice that John is in entire agreement with you in denouncing hypocrisy. Again, you should love this. Notice John does not gloss this over as some sort of power-hungry man himself and say, well, just let Diotrephes go. He's kind of doing his thing. He does not cover for Diotrephes, not at all. He condemns his hypocrisy in no uncertain terms. That's the kind of Christianity we also want, and that should also speak volumes to you. But here's the big one and the final thing to say, that John does not give up on Jesus and John does not give up on the church because a few supposed Christian leaders are hypocrites. You see that? Neither does he tell Gaius to give up on Jesus or give up on the church. I know that whatever stories you're thinking of, I'm sure they're bad stories, and we would denounce them as John does, but it does not follow that just because there are certain Christians who are hypocrites that Christianity is not true. That's like saying because there's a chain-smoking doctor, medicine is not true. You can have a hypocritical doctor who teaches proper medicine, and the medicine is still true even if he is a hypocrite. Same thing we got going on here. I'm pleading with you, if this is you in this position, make the distinction between Jesus Himself and healthy churches and those who do terrible things and call themselves Christians and call themselves leaders. There is a huge distinction there. Like John and like Gaius, don't give up on Jesus and don't give up on Jesus' church, which He loves with all of His being, because there is Christian hypocrisy in our society. So that is who we are not supposed to imitate. But now let's look at the positive and bring this to a close. Verse 11 says, we are to imitate those people who do good. I cannot express how important this is, and my longing for you is that you have people in your life whom you can say eureka about. In other words, I have found them. I have found people worthy of imitation. I think we all know the power of this, don't we? 
Just speaking personally, I remember uh, my family moved from Calgary to Kamloops when I was going into my grade 12 year. And when I lived in Calgary as a teenager, I wanted to live for Jesus, but I found it very hard because I really had no good Christian friends, no good people uh, who were good examples for me. And so I really was not following Christ. Then I moved to Kamloops and I met a bunch of solid Christian teenage friends. Just their example helped to spur me on and to get me walking on the right path again. Their influence was so important. And looking back at my life, I think that's a turning point for me. There's many turning points, but that was a key turning point in setting me on the path of following Christ. It was the influence of other people. And I'm sure if you've been a Christian for some time, you can also look to your life and say, man, that person, that man, that woman, that person had such an influence on me in a positive way. I imitated them, and I am so much the better for it. So, here, now let's apply the test here. How can you spot a Christian who is worthy of imitation? In verse 12, John illustrates the test with this positive example of a man named Demetrius. And here are three at least three quick ways you can spot someone who is worthy of imitation. Here's the first thing. You can spot Christians who are worthy of imitation because they have a good reputation. As John writes, Demetrius has received a good testimony, and notice this, from everyone. They have a good reputation. Listen, you, people can hide for a while but even just follow some of the big cases of Christian hypocrisy, it will catch up to them eventually. You cannot hide sin forever. On the flip side, the positive side, the longer you know someone who is a true believer worthy of imitation, the more their reputation grows, the more they show themselves to be worthy of imitation. And of course, you should have people in your life that you're looking for in this. Look for people who are even peers. Maybe if you're a young mom, you look for someone else who's a mom, you think that mom loves Christ and raising their family well get together, talk about it. You're in business. Look for another business person who is a good example of what it means to follow Christ and do business. Say, hey, can we get together and talk about how I do this? Find people in your life for whatever stage you're at, whatever your career is, who can be people you can learn from. Second, you can spot Christians who are worthy of imitation because their lives are consistent with the truth the opposite of hypocrisy. Notice what he says of Demetrius. That Demetrius has not only received a good testimony from someone, he adds another thing, and from the truth itself. The truth, as we read it in Scripture, when you laid it up against Demetrius's life, the truth said, here is a man worthy of imitation. Many of you have probably heard the name John Stott, a world-famous pastor and writer. Uh, he just passed away a few years ago, but to the, in 2005, Time Magazine, Time Magazine mentioned him as one of the most hundred influential people in the world. There's another man named David Wells, also a famous author and speaker. He got to live with John Stott in London for some period of time, and he gave a great tribute to John Stott. Here's what he said, John Stott is what he is in public, what he is in private. He is the same man. Wow, what a tribute. His Christianity is not an act that he puts on. It's not a, something fake. He walks the truth. That's the kind of person that you want to imitate. And then finally, 
You can spot Christians who are worthy of imitation because godly church leaders commend them. They speak well of them. Again, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. John says, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So, there's some illustrations of how to apply this imitation test to the people that are in your life. So, let's quickly close now and just apply this imitation test to our life. Who are you imitating? Who do you have in your life who you think, when you think of the influences, and these influences could be coming through social media, they could be coming anyway. All the people that are influencing your life, are they people who are a good influence or are they fool's gold? And don't just seek, to, seek for people to imitate, also seek to be a person worthy of imitation. I think Paul's exhortation to Timothy can be true for us all when Paul says this to Timothy. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example. Set an example, Timothy. Set an example for the believers in a few areas. Here's the areas. First of all, in your speech, Timothy. And to us, we'd say, does my speech, is my speech worthy? If other people are imitating me, is my speech a good example in the way that I talk? Not just your speech, in life, the whole way I live my life, is it a way that others can follow me as I follow Christ? Then also in love, am I consciously seeking to do acts of love for other people, caring for people in whatever ways they need? And then in faith, am I the kind of person that sets an example of persevering in faith, of seeking Christ during times of hardship, casting my cares on God? Am I a person who is an example of faith? And then finally, in purity. And specifically, of course, he's speaking of sexual purity in the context as well. Am I a person who others could look to and follow my example when it comes to a pure life, that there's, I'm striving to put all those, that sexual immorality, I'm striving to put it all to death as an evidence that I love Jesus Christ? Set an example. This is how John writes then. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to make the connection for us biblically that the Lord's Supper is not just about remembering Jesus' death. It's remembering His death and the implications for what it means to live our lives for Christ. So let's just take this time now as we're going to sing a song that reflects on the heart of the gospel, that it's Christ alone who can save us. As we sing that, let's make the connection to our lives as well. And let's confess sins that we have going on. Maybe right now for you, the Spirit of God maybe is calling you to a time of repentance saying, this, these areas, we've got to deal with these areas. Take this time of repentance as we sing and glory in what Jesus has done for you. Let's sing now in Christ alone. <laughs>